Exodus chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it, and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with two tablets of covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewellery, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Moses said that the people were running, saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. 
Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbour. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Certainly one very sobering passage of scripture, that one. Last year, I had the... Um, I enjoyed reading Peter Fitzsimmons' book about Birkin and Wills and the crossing of Australia from south to north, from Melbourne through to the Gulf of Carpentaria. It's an epic read. If you get a chance to read it, it's worthwhile because... Um, I imagine these days it's still the same. At primary school I learned about Burke and Wills and I didn't know all of the things involved with it. And um, one of the, the highlights is that they were delayed leaving Melbourne in the winter of 1860. And as they headed up through the centre they encountered, first of all, freezing cold, but then as summer approached, baking heat. And then by the time they got towards the Gulf of Carpentaria, it was monsoon rains, it was cyclone season. And then on the way back, the land was, was sodden. By then, the horses were just exhausted. They were starting to run out of food. And one thing led to another, a whole series of poor decisions and a series of unfortunate events. And they arrived back to their base camp um, in about June of 1861, took roughly 12 months, and they were emaciated, exhausted, and they found a note saying the team had left that very morning. That very morning, the team had left the base camp and headed off, but they didn't have the strength to pursue and they died a, a long, slow death by starvation, I think sometime around the end of June 
1861. So a sad chapter in Australian history unfolded at least in part because a trusted sub-leader, not knowing what might have become of his leader, who was without food or water, decides to take matters into his own hands and does his own thing. And there's a lot of parallels here in many ways with the account that we've just heard about. We see that uh, while Moses is up receiving all of this information, not just the Ten Commandments, but all of that information for the building of the tabernacle, for the setting up of of a system for atonement and for approaching and drawing near to God, that in the very act of that happening, Israel figures out, I don't know what's happened to Moses. What's happened to this bloke? You think about it. He's up there 40 days and nights, just two days short of six weeks. And they're thinking, don't know. Where is he? And they decide to take matters into their own hands. And it's just the saddest, saddest event. In Moses' absence, they naturally turn to Aaron. You see it here in in the chapter. Um, They approach Aaron, verse 2, and say, uh, Aaron, you know, come, make us gods who will go before us, verse 1. And then Aaron's answer is, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. Now, they got those earrings from the Egyptians. Before they left Egypt, the Egypt, they had favour with the Egyptians and they gave them all their gold earrings, etc. So out of, out of what Egypt has supplied, they then go and make what they were familiar with in Egypt, a golden calf. Because one of the, the ways that the Egyptians worshipped God was through a golden calf idol. And it seems that they sought to worship the Lord, but through the methods that they learned in Egypt. Because we're told when our, uh, that next day, gathered together, we're going to have a feast and we're going to worship the Lord. So tomorrow there'll be a festival to the Lord. So all the people gather together and they've got this golden calf that Aaron has fashioned and they're going to have a feast to the Lord. So Egypt's fertility gods were visible. Jehovah, the Lord Israel's God, was not visible. He was shrouded in a cloud on a mountain. The people were looking for clarity. They were looking for something visible, something they could identify with, and they reverted back to the familiar. But they tried to make it as unto the Lord, but it was never going to work. It was not God's way. And when you think about it, when people walk by sight, they're looking for things that are visible. When people walk by sight rather than by faith, they're looking for what is touchable, handable, um, something you can relate to, something you can see. But the great I am is mysterious and fearsome. He, He thundered from a mountaintop. And he said to Moses, you cannot look upon me. No one can see me and live. 
And even when, when Moses saw the Lord, he, he only saw him in, in appearance. He only saw him from behind, not the fullness of his majestic glory. So what aggravated Israel's sin here was that they'd been warned not to do this. In the, back in Exodus 20, when we read the Ten Commandments, remember God himself had thundered those commandments from the mountain. And the people had cringed in fear and they said to Moses, you go near, we don't want to, lest we die. And God himself agreed with that assessment. And, and they'd heard the commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image in the likeness of anything in heaven or on earth. You shall not bow down to them. You shall not worship them. For I am the Lord your God. So they knew these things and that aggravated their sin. And the ironic thing is it happens while Moses is receiving the very thing they're going to need the most, a system of atonement for when they do sin, and break God's commandments. It's, it's not hard to see ourselves in Israel's actions, is it? When God's ways are mysterious to us and we, don't, we, we find it difficult to fathom and understand what's going on, what, what he might be doing or what's happening in our lives and we've been praying about something and we don't see an answer to prayer, we can so easily become impatient just like Israel. Impatience, waiting for God, is a recurring sin in Scripture. You think about it, see, that, that was the, the issue that Abraham and Sarah faced. The Lord had promised a son and they waited and they waited, and they waited, and no son was forthcoming. And eventually Sarah says to Abraham, look, take my servant girl Hagar, sleep with her, and under the system that we all recognise from the nations around us, because she's my handmaid, she's my servant, the heir, the child that will be born to her, will be ours. So they take it in hand and they do that. And they get Ishmael, not Isaac, not the child of promise, taking matters into their own hands. You see it time and time again in Scripture. And it doesn't lead to a good outcome. It, it, it promotes God's anger. And you might be tempted to doubt God's goodness in your life. You might be uh, struggling to discern his wisdom and, and his, his ways, whether he's really loving to you. You may be impatient that he's not giving you the job you want or the body you'd like or the partner you desire or the child that you yearn for. But with our heart curved in upon ourselves, which is what sin has done to us, we, we find it a struggle to trust God. He who is invisible. He who is unfathomable to us. He who in his goodness seems inscrutable to us. We, his ways are higher than our ways and we struggle to understand him. 
And so we try to take matters into our own hands. I can certainly relate to this. I've probably got a, one of those great big blue skips that you the builders throw rubbish into. I reckon I've probably got one of those skipfuls of if-onlys in my life. If only I hadn't done this. If only I'd trusted God. If only. And we can look here and we can see if only they'd waited a little bit longer. If only Aaron had stood up. He's weak-kneed. He didn't stand against him. He just completely gives in to what they're doing. So when we become impatient with God, we're not headed in a good direction. We need to learn to apply prayer like a handbrake to our actions. And what we see here in, in uh, Exodus 32 is the unholy state of the human heart turned inward upon itself through sin. That's the outstanding thing that comes out. We see it in God's statement about the people in verse 8. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them. They've made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Direct flagrant contradiction of the Ten, of the ten Commandments. We see it in Aaron's response to Moses' question later on in the chapter. When Moses says, what did these people do to you that, that led, you to, led you into such great sin? And listen to Aaron's reply, his self-justifying reply. Don't be angry. The people asked for gods, so I told them to take off their gold jewellery. I made a fire and threw in the jewellery and out came this calf. Now you think about it, he's implying this is a miracle. God's hand is in this. God, it, it's, it's utterly outrageous. He's, he's not owning up to his actions. He's trying to justify and excuse himself. And self-justification can never lead to atonement. Whenever you try to justify yourself, you will never have forgiveness from God. The only way to, to get forgiveness from God is to come clean, and Aaron's not doing that. We're told in Deuteronomy 9, when Moses recounts events of what had happened through the wilderness just before he dies, when the people are on the verge of entering the promised land, in, in Deuteronomy 9, he says that God was so angry with Aaron about this that, that he was ready to kill him. It doesn't come out here in Exodus 32, but Deuteronomy 9 tells us that. In fact, five other times in the Bible, this whole golden calf episode is referred to. Stephen mentions it, and it didn't do him much good. He got stoned. Paul warns about it in 1 Corinthians 10. Nehemiah refers to it. The Psalms re refer to it. So sin ruins us. Instead of viewing life through the eyes of faith and trust in God, we tend to doubt God's goodness or mercy. And we try and manufacture things the way we think they ought to be. We try and make things happen. And your life and mine is littered with the evidence of doing that. It's how sin has affected us. 
just before the days when God flooded the earth, in the days of Noah, we're told the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. So God wiped out the world and started again with a righteous man, Noah. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Says Jeremiah to rebellious Israel when they're about to go into exile in Babylon. The human heart is full of creativity for sin and deceit, but deficient when it comes to seeing and understanding God. Now, I'll give you, I've got a classic example of this. Our, uh, our children, we did not have to give them careful, patient instruction in how to lie. They, they just did it. They, they had us as their parents. We, no one had to teach me how to do it either. It's one of the ways that we see sin working in the world. So you, you'd catch a child and they, you know, you, did you eat the, those chocolates that, that I said not to eat? They said, what chocolates? He said, that, that, that chocolate. I can't see any chocolate. And they're just self-justifying behaviour. You just see it all the time. And any parent can relate to this. As adults, we do this too. It's just we're a bit more sophisticated in how we do it. We, we're sort of a bit more presentable and we make sure that we hide the evidence better and we try and make sure that the circumstances are most advantageous for us so that people just won't see. But we, what's at work in us is exactly what you see in a young child. It's the outworking of sin. The heart turned in on itself, away from God, attempting to justify itself. And there was Aaron's best effort, and it, it didn't cut the mustard. So Exodus 32 shows us clearly the unholy state of the human heart, but there's also hope here for change, because we see the renewed state of a godly heart in action here too. We see Moses in action. Moses' godly heart is seen when he turns toward God in prayer and intercession during this calamity. Moses sought the favour of the Lord, verse 11. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac and Israel. And he pleads God's promises to, back to God. So where Israel was impatient, Aaron was deficient, Moses is steadfast. Moses is decisive, he's determined, and he clings to the promises of God. And he draws near to God, and he acts on behalf of the people. So you think about what we've just seen here. God was so angry, he said... I want to destroy these people. He says, verse 10, Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. 
He's wanting to do with Moses what he'd already done with Noah. But it didn't work with Noah. Sin recurred. Righteous Noah, the friend of God who found grace in the eyes of the Lord, still had sin in his heart. He didn't have to teach his children to hide the chocolate either. To lie. It just... It just happens. And probably Moses knew this. And he declines God's offer. God said, stand aside. I'll wipe out Israel and I'll start afresh with you. And Moses says, no thanks, Lord. Now that has to be a bold man to stand up and say that to God. So, in fact, at least three times in the Bible we see Moses acting like this. Back in Egypt, rather than being identified with Pharaoh, where he was going to grow up and be prince and probably inherit, he chooses to suffer affliction with the children of God, his his birth people. Here in this incident, he says, No, my Lord, no, I won't take up that offer. Will you please have mercy upon your people? And he pleads to the mercy of God. And we see it again at Kadesh Barnea, which is on the boundary of the promised land. It was going to unfold just shortly after this. Um, It's... The spies had gone in to check out the land and they came back and said, there's giants there. The fruit is unbelievable. Everything's on a scale beyond what we're used to. We look like grasshoppers in their sight. We can't enter here. And Moses says, but God's promised it to you. And God says, stand aside I want to wipe out these unfaithful people. I'll just spare Joshua and Caleb and I'll start afresh with you, Moses. And again, Moses declines the offer. So this kind of desire and this kind of intention only happens from a changed heart. It only happens when the grace of God has deeply penetrated the human heart. And that's what you see coming out here. So other aspects of Moses' response is towards God's people, his own people, Israel. He gets down the mountain to survey the scene before him and then his godly heart, he just pled for these people before God and his heart is broken by what he sees. And he he grabs the commandments written by the hand of God and he throws them down and breaks them. Smashes them because that's exactly what the people had done. He breaks the tablets of the law. And he says, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And he'd already got the people to, he ground up the calf and he got them to drink the water. In other words, drink the bitterness of their actions. This water with a ground up golden calf in it taste the bitterness of it, the bitterness of sin. And then he says, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And his own people, the tribe of Levi, come to his side. In many ways you can understand that. But I want you to think about this. There's no indication in this passage that the tribe of Levi didn't also do what the people did. 
and sit down to eat and drink and rise up to play and indulge in revelry, sexual revelry. It appears that they were just as guilty as anyone else. But the difference is they came to acknowledge it. And when Moses says, whoever is on the Lord's side, they came to him. He didn't say on my side, he said whoever's on the Lord's side. And they came to him. And then he says, well, go out amongst the people, those that aren't on, have said they're not on the Lord's side, and go and kill the people. And they acted. Now, how would you feel if you've done what the, the people that you're about to kill have been doing? But you go out in obedience and do it, knowing it's the will of God. It's a sign of a change of their heart that they had seen the wrongness of what they were doing and had come to the place of recognising I need to be on the Lord's side, not the wrong side of things. I need to do it God's way, not my way. And they changed. And Moses' righteous anger mirrored God's righteous anger. And, and they went out and they killed about 3,000 of the people that day. And, and later the Lord, in verse 35, we're told the Lord himself judged the people with a plague. So God is exceedingly angry with the people. And Moses, when he sees the actions of the people, can understand more why God was so angry. So we've seen the true state of the human heart under the influence of sin the state of a godly heart under the influence of mercy, but we also gain a glimpse of the true state of God's heart here. The natural state of God's holy heart is both just and merciful, both righteous and compassionate. You may wonder about me saying this when you read I've seen these people verses 9 and 10 they're a stiff necked people now leave me alone that my anger may burn against them that I may destroy them then I'll make you into a great nation but God's speaking out of his holiness he's speaking saying this is not right and I have purer eyes than to behold evil he cannot tolerate sin and it's why God judged the earth with a flood. It's why God's so angry here with the people. God's holy hatred of sin moves him to judge it, to eliminate it. God and sin cannot coexist. And Israel was about to learn this through the righteous laws that they were receiving via Moses if they just waited a bit more patiently God was setting up a system of atonement so that his fierce anger for sin could be averted through the means that he appointed, not the way they were going to try and make it happen. Our holy triune God still hates sin. He cannot tolerate it. It's utterly repulsive to his holy nature. And there's no inconsistency when God says to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt in verse 7. Their actions weren't corresponding with God's actions, they were corresponding with human beings' actions. So the Lord says to Moses, your people whom you brought out of Egypt. It's like he's, he's distancing himself from his own people. 
Now, Nehemiah 9 is really helpful for us here because Nehemiah 9 talks about the golden calf episode. Verses 17 and 18, it says, They, Israel, refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked in their rebellion. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. So there's a holy God who cannot tolerate sin, but in his essential nature, he's gracious and compassionate, does not delight in the death of the wicked. So there's two, it's almost from our perspective like there's competing desires, but in God they coexist very happily. They're fine. Drink in these words from Romans 3. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, his patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so, that, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Everything that was being set up in the tabernacle was only going to be temporary anyway because it was pointing to the one true sufficient sacrifice for sin in his son Jesus. This holy and righteous God has compassion and he so loved the world he would give his one and only son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. If they'd followed God's ways, they would have been pointed towards Christ. That's what the tabernacle was for, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. All God's promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus to the glory of God by us. So faith says, Lord, I trust you. I see I have a problem in your sight. I see that I have sin and you cannot behold my sin. And I still live. But I thank you for your son made in your image, made just like me, who stood in my place and suffered for me, that you had forbearance and patience toward me in my sin, in your wrath, you remembered mercy. You held back the full fierceness of your anger so that you might have compassion and forgiveness on those who turned their hearts to you. And this is the hope of the gospel. This is the only hope we have. That's why Paul nearly always in his letters begins with grace, mercy and peace to you from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. Grace, mercy, and peace. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God will judge sin. He does judge sin. He has judged sin in his son, Jesus Christ, at the cross. All who believe in him shall not perish, 
but have everlasting life. So by grace through faith in Jesus, God's wrath is turned away. This is what we're seeing here because there's no actual formal system of atonement set in place at this stage for the people. But what we see is God's essential nature shining through. He's holy and he burns with anger toward them, but he restrains himself because of mercy and he's going to forbear with them and he will fulfill his promises. This is encouragement for us. Draw near to God. Confess to him and he will draw near to you. You will be justified properly, not trying to do it yourself. It'll be God's way, not man's way. It's the only way. Let's pray. Our gracious and merciful Father, we thank you that you are righteous, but full of compassion and mercy, abounding in loving kindness and steadfast love, forgiving sin and iniquity. This is your nature too. We thank you that the wisdom that is from above is first pure and then peaceable, clean, pure, full of mercy and good fruit. We thank you, Father, for your great mercy. Without it, we would be lost. Thank you, O our Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit until your work on earth is done. We thank you for your blazing holiness that it reminds us of of what you really are in your being, that you are so different from us that sin has corrupted us. But out of that blazing centre of holiness comes forth not just wrath but mercy. A driving passion to save sinners. Parting with your only son that we might have life through his death. Thank you God for the gospel. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. Not by human endeavour, not by the work of our hands, but by the work of your hands, the work of your Son, your beloved Son in whom you are well pleased. Shake us awake, Lord, from the slumber of compromise in our hearts, from friendship with a world that is enmity with God, Set us going in the right direction, a Moses kind of direction that draws near to you and acts on behalf of those who cannot help themselves, who do not know their right hand from their left, who cannot distinguish the things of God if they fell over them. Father, help us, we pray, to speak of your name, to speak out in love, to know that you are the God who will have mercy because mercy triumphs over judgment, that you will not turn away those who draw near to you. Train our hearts, change us, Lord, to become like Jesus, who stood between God and man as the only mediator. We thank you for Moses' example as a mediator. 
We thank you for our great mediator, better than Moses, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray.